Good morning. It's good to see you. Uh, <clears throat> I have to echo, as I'm echoing, but after <laughs> I have to echo the uh, uh, the words of uh, both Jerry and, uh, and Drew, such good words this morning, uh, preparing our minds, helping us worship. Uh, so so nice uh, to hear hear those things as we sang uh, the song uh, about uh, Jesus and that dead body suddenly breathing. Uh, that's what it's about. It's all about the resurrection. And the reason he did that was to bring us rest. And that's what we want to talk about this morning. You open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. <clears throat> the, uh, the Hebrew writer has a pattern, and maybe you've noticed it by now. His pattern is to talk about a danger, a danger of falling, a danger of falling away, of going into an apostasy that one cannot recover from. I don't think that I understood that very well when I was younger, that uh, if I fell away, that I could get to the point that I could not come back. Uh, there is a picture here that he has given throughout this letter of that tremendous danger. And what impresses me, as I mentioned last week, is that we are talking about uh, veterans of the gospel here that are slipping and just on the verge of falling away. And therefore, the importance of him uh, giving this emphasis to them so that they do not, do not fall. In this particular text, we have both a warning and a promise. And that's the beauty of the way the Hebrew writer will do it. When you first became a Christian, and when I first became a Christian, my, my thought was, I don't want to go to hell. <laughs> I don't want to be lost. I've got to do something to escape this. I think that is present in everyone's mind when they first come to Christ. It is a great uh, motivator in the beginning. But as the Lord knew, that could not be the only motivator. And it is not. And that's what I love about how the Hebrew writer does this. He continues to show that the motivation has to grow into the strength of desiring Him and wanting to be with Him. That's the stronger motivation. If someone came to me, if, if, uh, if the Lord somehow uh, uh, tapped me on the shoulder one night and says, by the way, don't tell anybody, but there's actually no hell, uh, it wouldn't change anything about what I'm doing. It wouldn't stop anything that I am doing. It wouldn't change a bit because my desire for Him is so much greater now than my fear for hell. I, I want to be with Him. I don't care whether there's a hell or not anymore. It's because I want him. And that's where that growth has to go. And that's where I see the Hebrew writer doing. So the warning beginning, but then transitioning from that to get the idea in the mind of what it is, why it is so important that we do not lose that opportunity. There is a two-part outline here. The first is chapter 3, <laughs> verses 7 through 19 in which the writer says, we have this great high priest who has delivered us, who is getting us 
to the point where he can bring us through suffering and bring us on the other side so that we can be crowned with glory and honor and have, excuse me, <coughs> all things in subjection under his feet. Good. Somebody left water up here. <laughs> I don't know who sipped out of it, but who cares? As Chip said the other day, there's no such thing as COVID anyway. It's all gone. <laughs> I said, hallelujah. <laughs> oh, good. So there's a two-part outline. The first being, here is what Christ is trying to do. Do not harden your hearts. He is bringing you through to the other side. Do not harden your hearts. And then chapter 4, 1 through 13, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. You don't want to miss the rest. The previous generation missed the rest. You don't want to miss that rest. So there's where we're going, just two simple main points, and we want to see then some of the applications. Spend a little bit of time in this warning, but notice the pivotal point is in chapter 4, verse 1. So if you're looking at your Bible, you see in chapter 4, 1, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands. Interesting point. The promise of entering his rest still stands. We think of Canaan and we think, well, that took place, that happened, they missed it, others got in there, and then all of a sudden he says, no, the promise of entering his rest still stands. And since it still stands, then, then he goes on to say, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. That verse has always been striking to me because of the combination of grace and fear. We live in a world where it's almost like it's either one. Grace, then therefore no fear. Fear, therefore no grace. No, there is a combination that he gives here in which he puts this all together. This is the greatest grace you could ever read about, and therefore fear, fear that you could come short of it, fear that you may not get it. The fear is not so much what God would do to you, the fear is what you're going to miss. You need to be afraid you could miss this. This is fantastic. It is something God has prepared since the, before the foundation of the world. So you see that word that's used there. Now, I did a very lengthy Greek study on the word fear. It is amazing how complicated this is. It means fear. <laughs> Be scared to death <laughs> that you would miss this. That's what it means. Don't we love the Greek? So here it is. In, in the New, New Living Translation, he says, so we ought to tremble with fear. They are trying to give us the grasp of what that word entails. Tremble with fear that you might miss this very important opportunity. It is, it, is, it is so much like our dealings with a child, with a toddler. I watch, uh, a while back, I watched my, my, uh, my little uh, two-year-old toddle into the kitchen, stove wasn't on, but trying to reach up and touch the top of the stove. And you're like, yikes or wanting to just toddle down the middle of a road, uh, whatever. They have no idea, and you're wanting to say, you need to fear, not me, but I'm trying to protect you. I'm trying to get you where you need to go. And that's the idea that's given here by the Lord. 
fear because you could miss something so great and so amazing, and he does not want that to happen. Now, again, pivotal point here, therefore, look at the word, therefore. That therefore, of course, is based on what he has said previously in the text in verse 7 on down. And we want to just take a moment to look at that so that we can appreciate the rest that he is emphasizing here and the danger of hardening our hearts. That's, that's the picture that he wants us to see. So when you see like verse chapter 3 and verse 16, I, I think is, is so critical in which he summarizes basically the whole text. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Okay, well, who were they? And then he answers his own question. Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? Who were the ones who hardened their hearts and rebelled? Was it not those he saved? Was it not those he showed all of his miracles and signs and wonders? Was it not those who received the greatest grace they could give, be given because they had no way to escape that bondage? Who was it? They were the ones who fell. You see his message to us? That's his message to us. Who is it that could possibly fall? Was it not, is it not, those for whom Jesus died and revealed and, and, and took out of bondage? Is it not those? See, that's what he's saying. And there's a great warning that that would not happen. I, I, you know that the Hebrew writer had to have powerful emotions as he was speaking this. And, and I, I always think that the readers of these congregations, the one who would stand up and read, surely tried to get that emotion into the hearts of their audience. Look what, look who lost the rest those who were taken and saved out of Egypt. That's the idea. And therefore, he gives the exhortation. And that's the center point, then, of this text previous to chapter 4. Look at the exhortation, verse 12 of chapter 3. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Could do whole lesson on those two verses, but get the main emphasis here. First, take care. I, every time I see those words, I think of Deuteronomy and Ezekiel. Every time. You can't help it. Deuteronomy, the idea of taking care and being careful, used oodles of times through the book. Translated that way about 18 times, but there's even more times the Hebrew word is used. Ezekiel 36, when he's prophesying of Christians, says, You will be careful, they will be careful to obey me. Take care is the idea. This is something that you have to be really aware of. If you're like me, and you probably are in some ways, and happily you're not in others, but if you're like me, you don't take real care sometimes. You're just barreling down through life and acting like you got the world by the tail and not stopping and have some introspection. Where am I going? How am I doing? 
take care. Personal examination is what he's going to talk about at the end of chapter of this text in chapter 4, 12, and 13. Secondly, lest there be in you an evil heart of unbelief. I thought about that, those, that little phrase, in you. Lest there be in you an evil heart of unbelief. Do you think that's in you? Lest there be in Do you think that's in you? Uh, yeah, I see a lot of you nodding like I would. I think somewhere deep in there, yes, there is. And you know when it comes out? It comes out when I'm supposed to do something I don't want to do. And that spirit that comes way deep inside of rebelliousness, of this is my life and I want to do what I want to do, comes oozing out and that rebellion, if repeated, soon comes to stubbornness. It's very dangerous. Lest there be in you. What is going to solve, and here comes then our first remedy. He's going to have three remedies to an unbelieving evil heart. Here is our first remedy that he gives to avoid the evil, unbelieving heart in you, and that is exhorting one another every day as long as it is called today. That is what has to happen, he says. An exhortation between one, there's our remedy. Now, which are you? The exhorter or the one who needs exhorting? Hopefully, you said the answer is yes. <laughs> yes. I need to be an exhorter. That's what the text emphasizes. I need to be exhorted. Yes, that's what the text emphasizes. You know, exhorting isn't just you know, you ought to do better. Exhorting is also, you're doing a great job. Keep going. Stay on the path. Is it hard to know whether you're doing a good job or not? I think it's very difficult. You get inside yourself. You're too close to the trees. You're just marching forward, trying to do the best you can. And sometimes you don't even know. And it's nice, isn't it? When somebody says, hey, you're on the track, man. You're on the road. You're doing well. Keep going. You see that even in the Hebrew writer's exhortation. He will talk about how you did so well. You were doing great. Don't slip back. Don't move that. You can do this. I have better expectations of you. I know you. You can do this. There is the need always. We should do that among one another. I love uh, Drew's words about love there. We should do that among one another. Be sure and say, hey, good job. I really appreciate what you're doing. We, that's exhortation. It's not just, hey, bad you. <laughs> it's, it's good job. I've seen you do that. And that is an extremely important part of this. We need exhorting and we need to be an exhorter as well. Notice the words, though, in opposite what, what happens to us. This word unbelief. You see it in verse 19. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Compare it back to the beginning of the text, verse 10. Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. Here's the problem with unbelief. Here's the problem with disobedience. Here's the problem with what happens when we get that evil, unbelieving, stubborn heart within us. It happens because we don't like his ways. <laughs> it's just pretty simple. We don't like his ways. 
His ways are not our ways, the Isaiah writer said. His ways in thoughts are not our thoughts. And I have to conform my ways and my thoughts to his thoughts. And I don't often like that. Just all there is to it. And I have to get back under control. Unbelief has to do when we don't fit into that. Let me suggest to you this particular concept. And Jesus he, he, Jesus in John 6, you might remember, he fed 5,000. They come the next day, we're ready for breakfast. <laughs> and he says, you don't get it. I'm feeding you the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. Now don't misunderstand that statement. He's not saying, duh, they died. He's saying they ate miraculous bread from heaven and they died spiritually because all they cared about was the physical. That's what happened. What are you feeding on? You see, there's the principle. That's what the Hebrew writer is saying. You didn't like my ways. My ways were trying to feed you what you really need, the spiritual but you did not do that. Consider what it was like. We love to throw stones at the wilderness generation. <laughs> it's just like, you goofballs, look what you did. You saw all of this. But think about it. Every day, there were things that they could complain about. Every day. You and I are no different do you live a day in which you find something not that you couldn't complain about if you wanted to? And probably at times do, like I do? Yes! That's because we're still in the wilderness. But we want it my way. We want not to happen. We want somebody to fix this. And that's what they kept doing. You see... There's a very important principle that fits into this. Deuteronomy 8, verse 2. Here are the words. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. What did they do? I don't like his ways. They don't know him. They don't know what he's trying to do. God intentionally allows us to be in conditions in which there would be a reason to complain. It's the difference between solving a problem that needs solving and complaining and murmuring that it's not the way I, I would like it. It's not the what I want. And I'm restless to constantly want things to go my way. That's a great danger because then I'm not focusing on the promised land. And I'm not focusing mainly on what God is doing. He has this intentionally to test your heart and my heart to discipline like a father would discipline a son to get us to an end goal. If I'm complaining about everything that happens in life, I'm complaining about him. He's the one who put me in this wilderness. So there's a great danger 
that is presented there. Now, with that understanding, transition then to the, to the rest that he wants then for us to actually have. Look at, I want you to think about just to introduce this. How many of you know about the daughters of Zelophehad? Yeah, great gals. Uh, the daughters of Zelophehad, they come before Moses just before they enter the land of Canaan. And they say, um, our dad died in the wilderness because of his sin. And we don't have any brothers, and he only had girls. And we're going to end up losing the whole inheritance of our father. So that doesn't seem right. We should be able, because we're gals, doesn't mean we shouldn't get the inheritance. What do you think, Moses? And Moses says, just a second. God, what about that? God says, they're right. Do it. Give them the inheritance. Whoopee. I love that part. Be those women for just a moment. I, as I read that, it really struck me. Our father died for his sin in the wilderness. He was among those to whom God said, I swore in my wrath he will not enter my rest. Being a little sad about that if you're in their position? That's tough. What a great warning to us. If you miss the rest, there's a son or a daughter, a husband or a wife, a father or a mother that will be heartbroken for. Don't do that. My wise guy, um, third son, the other, oh no, second son. Yeah, I get them all mixed up. Decided to say something smart. I go, like, well, maybe I'll just quit and go off and, and be a whatever and talked about some other religion. I said, don't joke about that. You'll bring my gray hairs down to Sheol in mourning, <laughs> as Jacob said. Don't do that. We need to understand the value of the rest. Here's the second remedy then. God's purpose is to bring us to his rest. It has always been his purpose to bring us into his rest. Let's appreciate that for a second. God introduced his rest first and foremost, in chapter 2 of Genesis, verses 2 and 3, when he rested from his works. Unbeknownst to him, uh, to us, as we read that, we think, okay, he rested. So what? I lived most of my life wondering, so what? He rested. But the Hebrew writer says, did you notice that? He rested from his works. Look at the words. Just follow this with me somewhat, and then we'll put this together in a simple way. Verse 3, chapter 4. For we who believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Okay, when did he swore in his wrath, they shall not enter my rest? While Israel was going through the wilderness and disobeyed, right? 
Verse 4, For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. There's our passage in Genesis 2. And again in the passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. Now he's quoting Psalm 95, David. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter it because of disobedience, again he points a certain day today, Psalm 95, David. Uh, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden his heart. For Joshua, if Joshua had given them rest, book of Joshua, he would, he, he would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there is, remains a Sabbath rest of the people of God. All that complicated statements there is trying to prove that the Sabbath rest or the rest that God promised isn't gone. Watch. First, God introduced his rest, Genesis 2. Then David warned Israel in Psalm 95, don't miss the rest. If you harden your hearts, you will, not be, you will not have the rest. David said that 500 years after Israel sinned. David warned. Then he goes, Joshua did not give them rest. Now he's quoting from Joshua chapter 21, where it says he, re he made them rest from all their enemies. And I've heard Christians for years say, well, see, that rest is gone. No, it's not. That was only a foreshadowing of the eventual rest God would bring us to. And then conclusion, therefore the rest remains. Genesis, God rested. There was an evening and a morning. No, there wasn't. One day, two days, three days, four days, five days, six days, and seventh day. No evening and morning. It continues. He didn't end the seventh day. David, 500 years after Moses spoke, said, I swore in my wrath they won't enter my rest. Don't harden your hearts lest you miss the rest. He's talking to people way after creation and way after the rebellion in the wilderness. And then the Hebrew writer turns around and says, Joshua didn't give them rest because there's a greater rest to come. And therefore, the rest remains. That's the picture of those seemingly complicated words that are given there. Here's God's original intention. It's pictured by the garden. The garden scene is seen in Genesis 2. The garden scene is seen in Revelation 20 through 22, 21 and 22. He's bringing us back to the garden scene, back to rest. That's his intention. He blessed the Sabbath day, and then he brings in. You say, well, okay, fine. Then he echoes it. Weekly Sabbath, every seventh year, sabbatical year, year of jubilee. He keeps echoing, this is what I'm about to do. What were each, what were each of those like? What was the importance of each of those? In every single case... He is getting them to understand, I want you to live for the rest. I want you to live for when you are with me. Sabbath day. Did they have to go work in order to eat? Or did they have enough food on Sabbath? Had enough food. 
sabbatical year, a whole year, 365 days, did they have to work to have food? No, they didn't have to work to have food. God gave them enough in the sixth year to cover the seventh year. Jubilee, every 50th year, which included, by the way, 49 comes before 50. Two solid years, no working, all debts go free. If you're a slave, you're free. Everybody's free. And guess what I'm going to do? For three years, I'm going to let you rest so that you and I can enjoy the presence together. And then God says, Joshua didn't give him rest. There still remains a rest for the people of God. What is the rest all about? See, folks, this is the reason God got so angry when they violated the Sabbath. This is the reason he just absolutely went off of them. In, in the Ezekiel 20, he uses Sabbath as the key as to why I'm going to destroy you and why I have destroyed you. You didn't keep the Sabbath. What does that mean? You didn't care about time with me. It wasn't just, oh, you know, I wanted you to rest your body. This has nothing to do with them resting their body. It had to do with stop and be with me. Doesn't that bring new meaning to God so loved the world? Doesn't that bring new meaning to that? We just think about it as, oh, the physical rest. No. God is bringing us to be with him. And that is the reason this was so very, very important. So here's our lessons. What is our attitude about worship, whether collectively or individually, coming into his presence boldly? Hebrews 10 verse 19 says, boldly entering into the presence of God in the holy place. What is our attitude toward it? Ah, you know, well, you know, you got to go to church. Well, you know, the elders got on me because I didn't go to church. No, no, they didn't. No, they didn't. They don't want you to miss the rest. They want you to have a love for God that is so deep that you can't stand not to be with him and that everything is generated out of that. What is our attitude about study and prayer? What is our attitude about enjoying singing and praising God together? What is our attitude about exhortation and encouragement and the need that we have to do that with one another? What is our attitude about that? You see, all of this he is talking about, this is what I love this is what I'm planning. This is what I want you to enjoy. I want us to enjoy sitting down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of God. That's what I want you to enjoy. And me at the head of the table, at the presence of all of us. That's what I want you to enjoy. And that passion has to be built now. Now. That's why we love it and love him. That's why we desire him. That's why we work for him. That's why we strive, as he says, to enter that rest. And by the way, you can't do it online. 
can't do it online. Never could. It's sad. We've all been there when we get sick and we can't be here. It's sad when we get to the point a lot of our dear, beautiful, elderly people cannot be here. I know. It's so sad. I know they hurt because they miss this. One day, we will all have the rest that is so great. We must labor and strive to enter the rest. But the third remedy to avoid an evil, unbelieving heart are the final verses. Verse 12 and 13, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. How do you keep from having that little part of you, that unbelieving evil heart, crop up and create stubbornness? How do you keep from it? The Word of God, he's back to it every time, isn't he? The Hebrew writer just comes, comes back every time. You must keep opening your heart and comparing it. And when you read the Word, the sword of the Word of God needs to bring some blood. It needs to penetrate the thoughts and intents of your heart. That's the only way you can save it. We can spend a long time on that. Don't, can't, don't need to. You know that. You understand that. So the final thing is, there's only rest in God. Everything we're doing in this life, we're trying to seek rest, seek rest, seek rest, seek fun, seek pleasure, seek that. You won't find it here. You only find it in God. Therefore, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Chapter 4, verse 1. Going to sing a song right now. We can help you in any way. Please, let your, let your request be known either personally to someone afterwards or step to the front while we're singing. If you have not been immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins and you understand that commitment, please don't wait. No reason to wait. There's a rest awaiting the people of God. Let's stand and sing.